This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Growth Energy CEO Emily Score. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer promotes responsible environmental stewardship. Bayer is part of Growing Matters, an industry-wide effort that launched the Be Sure Stewardship Initiative this spring. Visit growingmatters.org slash be sure for more information on product stewardship. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Growth Energy's Emily Score next. Deciding how to manage weeds, insects, and diseases that routinely attack their crops is just one of many decisions farmers must make each season. Protecting bees and other wildlife is a major part of responsible stewardship and why Bayer is part of Growing Matters, an industry-wide effort that launched the BeSure Stewardship Initiative this spring. Through BeSure, Growing Matters reminds farmers and applicators this season to use treated seed responsibly and follow the label to protect bees and other wildlife. Visit growingmatters.org slash BeSure for more information on product stewardship. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The Trump administration delivered on its promise with an E-15 decision to amend the reed vapor pressure guidelines and allow for E-15 sales 12 months a year. Growth Energy CEO Emily Score says the EPA was within its rights to update a decades-old regulation. We know, and the EPA has said, the agency has clear authority to implement the law through appropriate regulations. So a move toward cleaner fuels is exactly what Congress intended under the Clean Air Act. We are confident that they're following uh, within their, the, the guidelines of what they're able to do, uh, and EPA has repeatedly stressed the same. So thinking then about the decision by the Environmental Protection Agency and allowing the year-round sales of E15, uh, when we talk politics, there are those that would like to get rid of the RFS altogether and certainly are looking at changes that are coming within the way that the law is enforced. Yes, we'll continue to have opposition to the renewable fuel standard because that's what allows us to compete in the marketplace. And so we're always going to be um, fighting that fight. What was nice to see in, in EPA's announcement about the rule is a recognition that in order for us to achieve the goals of the renewable fuel standard and the blending targets of increasing our biofuel use each year, we have to use higher blends of ethanol because most of the gasoline is using a 10% blend. So we've got to move to that 15% blend and we've got to make it easy for consumers and retailers to be able to do that, which is why this this move uh, from the EPA to grant year-round access to E15 is so critical. Growth Energy's had a relationship with NASCAR and you've been running E15 and those racing engines for a number of seasons now. What other work has been done that you can provide that gives confidence that E15 is okay? Well, I'll start by saying E15 is the most tested fuel. Um, it's been driven by uh, NASCAR drivers since 2011 in the toughest driving conditions. And you've got, I believe it's over 8 billion miles driven by consumers on E15 without any concerns in terms of the engine compatibility. And what, what's really nice about the NASCAR experience is you take those fuel experts and those driving experts, and when they talk to mechanics and auto enthusiasts, they can talk about how the fuel is cleaner burning, and it's actually better for their engine. Uh, so it's a, it's a really good way to validate the experience 
um, uh, with E15. And, you know, we have yet to see any consumer complaints in the marketplace when they're out there driving the miles today. As this is a regulation, it could be challenged in court. What do you see from the position uh, that the EPA, uh, when they came to this conclusion, is it defendable? It is defendable. And you had EPA commenting to the media, uh, and the comment is, we believe everything we're doing is wholly consistent with the Act. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be doing it. So EPA has expressed confidence that they are well within their ability to finalize this rule. Our legal team is looking at this. We have the same level of confidence. So we anticipate there may be some litigation from opponents who don't want to see access to higher blends in the marketplace increase. They may sue EPA. We're prepared for that, and we have confidence that we uh, and the industry will prevail in the end. From the campaign trail uh, before this president was elected uh, in Iowa and across the country showed support for uh, ethanol, renewable fuel, and even the mention of E15, but as the as the issue came to bear in Washington, there was the thought that there would be E15 sales year-round, but there would also be changes uh, with regard to the REN program, and some of those your group and others were strongly opposed to. What happened to the REN amendments, and has that gone away? You know, we were very pleased with how EPA treated and approached RIN amendments in the final rule that they issued. We really applaud the agency's careful decision to implement public disclosure requirements and enhance its market monitoring capabilities, but the agency also importantly declined to make some of the destructive changes to the RIN market that had been initially proposed. So we think it was a very measured uh, outcome in the final rule and something that the market certainly will be able to adjust to. Do you think EPA would come along with future developments with regarding to the RIN program? You know, hard to say. I mean, I think it, it's clear that that's more conversation and and deliberation needed to be, take place around that. So I think... I, I would imagine the agency will still be looking at this. There will still be a conversation. But the way in which they've weighed in in this proposed rule is appropriate at this point in time. We're fine with it. So then talking about the year-round sales of E15, how would you anticipate that will affect overall demand either in this driving season or driving seasons to come if you can continue to sell this product 12 months a year? You know, I get that question a lot. It's hard to forecast in the short term just how quickly an increased uptick we're going to see. Uh, I mean, you, you look for important market signals like Monday, Casey's announced. So the rule came out Friday. That very next Monday, Casey's announced they're adding E15 to 60 new locations as a result of this RVP, this final rule. So those are the kinds of market signals that we're looking to see in the short term that retailers are jumping in uh, and double down, doubling down, if you will, on E15. It's hard to anticipate the gallons. I mean, I think in the long term, the upside is if, if E15 becomes is adopted nationwide, as the standard fuel, that's 7 billion gallons of new demand, over 2 billion bushels of corn grind. So that's the total upside. How quickly it is to get there, you know, we'll have to see. So thinking that there would be greater use of ethanol, how would that affect the value of RINs? You know, RINs are pretty low right now. And, uh, you know, what we've long said is the more blending, the more you're going to keep RIN prices down because you're increasing the demand. And so... You know, we, it's hard to forecast. I think RIN prices will, will probably stay where they are, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see in the months ahead. Is this the end of E15 with regard to the EPA, or are there still issues that are uh, laying out there that will have to be resolved before it's final said and done? 
With respect to the ability to sell E15 year-round, the rule is final. And um, as I said earlier, we do expect litigation, and so we'll be prepared for that, but the rule should remain in place while while litigation goes through the courts. Uh, you know, the, on the next frontier for, for E15 is for there to be no restriction. Um, right now, it's approved for cars 2001 and newer, but again, if you look at how the, fe- the fleet is turning over, that's basically 95% of the fleet right now. Um, and so any more market hurdles to address, it's really going to be kind of on the retail access side, looking at increased uh, amounts of E15 available at terminal throughout the country. Those are really the, it's the commercial side that we're going to be focusing on moving forward. I'd like to get your thoughts on a story that was offered over the past week, and it comes from a GAO study suggesting that really the RFS has not helped the environment that much, nor saved the consumer that much money. Well, the GAO has a long history of underestimating the benefits of, of biofuels, and that reflects the input they collect from their so-called experts um, that are, you know, too often working for the oil industry. I mean, fortunately, you've got a lot of federal data out there from a wide assortment of sources, USDA, EPA, Department of Energy, and national laboratories that all show America's leadership in biofuels yields tremendous reduction in admissions. Uh, so there's a really good body of data out there that refute what we see at GAO. It's not surprising because this seems to be um, GAO's approach in terms of underestimating the benefits. So if we look at the politics of the day, obviously climate change is working its way toward the top of the agenda of a number of individuals that are in Washington now and certainly candidates that are vying for office. What place does renewable fuel have in sustainability and toward energy security as we look at reducing carbon. Biofuels like ethanol will play a critical role in any uh, effort to to address climate change. Ethanol is a low-carbon fuel. And so if you look at statistics, 39% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions when you're using ethanol relative to gasoline. So it's well-documented that it's a low-carbon fuel, and as politicians look toward and solidify around their low-carbon goals and policies, absolutely there is a critical role for biofuels to play because they're accessible and they're affordable today for every consumer. So if we look at the complete life cycle of ethanol, let's let's say that ethanol produced from corn, can you still post-muster with the sustainability message? Absolutely. I mean, when when I talk about the greenhouse gas emissions, that's a full life cycle comparison. And you look at the continued innovation that's happening with uh, precision agriculture at the ethanol plants. Farmers are doing more with less. Ethanol producers are doing more with less. So I anticipate our ability to be clean and green is going to increase simply looking at kind of the 10-year history that the industry has on its ability to make ethanol a low-carbon fuel. So those benefits will only continue to increase as you look at cellulosic technologies, for example. Cellulosic ethanol is 100% a reduction in greenhouse gas emission relative to gasoline. So a lot of upside, a lot of potential for us. One of the things that we need out of government continues to be strong signals to the marketplace that the investments and the hard work is worth it as we drive toward improving the low-carbon um, nature of ethanol. In early May, Growth Energy offered a press release suggesting the EPA guidance stifling the innovation for second-generation biofuels. How does that affect you and some of these other sources that might come for renewable fuel production? Well, I think that was in reference to uh, EPA had changed its guidelines on plants that are applying for corn kernel fiber technology. 
and you've got a lot of technological pathways that are sitting at the EPA right now, and EPA has yet to approve new technologies that have already been approved in the state of California. These technologies enable ethanol producers to create more cellulosic ethanol using the fiber of a corn kernel. So it's, it's tremendously exciting. It's innovative. It's exactly what we all want to see out of these plants. We just need EPA to get rid of the red tape and, and approve these pathways uh, for the plants that have sent the applications and done all the, the R&D necessary to get the approval. It was EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler on this show that told us that they were bound by law to consider and to grant small refinery waivers. They've been sued on both sides of the equation. But yet there is legislation that's been introduced now, bipartisan legislation in the House, that would cast an eye over the EPA's decision on these waivers. Why is this so important to your industry? This is critically important to the industry because this administration has quadrupled the number of waivers granted. Uh, and the result is these exemptions, they're punishing rural America by eliminating markets in a time when growers and producers need them the most. Just if you look at the exemptions granted in 2016 and 2017, 2.6 billion gallons of demand have been eliminated, absolutely eviscerated. So, I mean, I was around the Midwest last week looking at the, you know, the water. I mean, we need these markets. We need these demand drivers. Our message to EPA is simple. Do it right. Make it transparent. Meet your targets. We welcome the legislation. Uh, we're very pleased. It's got bipartisan support. And essentially what the legislation is saying, EPA, do what you should be doing. All right? If you're going to give an exemption, reallocate the obligation so the total blending target does not uh, is not diminished as a result. Administrator Wheeler pushed back on reallocation, suggesting that the waivers in some cases should be granted, and not necessarily by the name of the large corporation, but by looking at that refinery itself in that particular area of the country, but suggested that, you, again, push back against reallocating that uh, particular supply to other companies. Uh, we've heard that explanation, and there's uh, there's litigation underway right now because we don't we're not satisfied with that explanation. There's something that very simple that EPA could do, as they're setting the blending targets. All right, so we know that they're working on the blending targets for 2020. Account in your numbers. Account for the number of exemptions that you think that you're going to grant. So guessing that they're going to grant zero gallons in exemptions is ridiculous when you when you think of how many exemptions have been granted just in the past two years alone. So account for that ahead of time, and then you don't have to be reallocating after the fact. What is the plight of the ethanol refiner in the country today? Well, times are very tough right now. Uh, we talked about small refinery exemptions destroying 2.6 billion gallons of demand. Um, we've got... China, one of our biggest export markets, has been cut off to us because of protective tariffs as a result of the trade war with China. So we've got some really big things that we need to address to be able to restore our blending so that we are growing. We're growing demand domestically. We're growing globally as well. Uh, having said that, when you look at something like what's going on with E15, it's very exciting. It is exciting that consumers are going to have year-round access to this amazing fuel that's cleaner burning, uh, and so there's a lot of 
uh, a lot of tailwinds for us. There's some headwinds, too. So we're, we're bullish on the future. We've got to overcome some of these short-term demand destruction obstacles. But I think there's a, a really bright future for ethanol ahead, and that's that's what I continue to hear from all of our members. From the trade front, obviously a dust-up that, that is ongoing with China and resurfacing dust-up with uh, Mexico. Are there other opportunities that you see for ethanol in the globe that could change the face of this industry? Absolutely. There is a global appetite for our product. Make no mistake about that. Last year, we exported 1.7 billion gallons of ethanol. That's about a 25% jump from the year before, which was also a record number for exports. So despite the fact that we have lost one of our top three trading partners in China, we're still having record-setting exports. That just speaks to the global appetite for our octane that is a good value because we're able to produce it cheaply. You've got a lot of countries just to the north and south of us, Canada and Mexico, are both looking for their own domestic policy goals to expand use of, of ethanol. Mexico is opened up to E10. Canada, certain provinces are looking at not just E10, but E15 as well. Uh, China, once we get over the trade war, has committed to an E10 blending. Uh, and so if you look at our top trading partners, and if those countries become E10 markets just as the U.S. is, that is several billion gallons of increased demand that we could be looking at. I realize that you are the energy producer and not necessarily the auto industry, but there has been a relationship over time, and I wonder if you'd be willing to share some communication about what the auto industry needs from Washington as to direction, their responsibility to meet new CAFE standards. What does the auto industry tell you that they need and is this fight for E15 the last fight that you'll have for increased renewable fuel usage? It is not the last fight that we will have. We have more in our future. What we hear from the auto industry, as they need to work to meet more stringent fuel economy standards, they need a lighter engine and they need fuel that has a, delivers a higher octane. We know that ethanol delivers that higher octane at a good value uh, with good greenhouse gas profile, for example. And so a lot of the conversation that we have had with the auto industry and a lot of the work and research that we've done to c together has been optimizing a fuel for the future with the engine for the future. So that, that future fuel, that sweet spot would be anything from an E20 to an E30 blend. That provides the octane level that automakers would need uh, to be able to achieve their fuel economy standards. So that's, that is a line of conversation and work stream that's been in the works for several years. Uh, and we continue to work with auto industry and dialogue with them because we know this is ultimately where we need to go as a country. So if there's a roundtable that includes uh, members and officials of EPA and of the energy committees and the Congress, what does the legal pad from Growth Energy say about the direction that we need to go? If E15 is not the end, then what policy needs to come about to help you be successful and to help the auto industry be successful and also be responsible with environment? Well, first and foremost, we need to make sure that E15 becomes the full market success that it has the potential to be because that, that's a, a proof of concept, if you will. So talked a little bit earlier on the show that just moving from an E10 to an E15, if the nation adopted E15 as a standard fuel, that's 7 billion gallons of new ethanol demand. So a lot of the work in the short term has to be making sure that the commercial build-out is successful so consumers have access to this higher blend. In addition and simultaneous to that 
it's really going to be working with the auto industry, working with the oil industry, working with politicians, Republicans and Democrats to work for those on those longer policies that uh, incentivize and promote using fuel with higher octane, fuel that is renewable fuel made here in the United States. So that's going to be kind of a mid to longer term goal. But in the short term, we're also incredibly focused on making this rule that we just came out of EPA, making sure that everybody capitalizes on it in the marketplace. What's the status now of cellulosic ethanol? Is it dead in water or is there still movement? It's there's still movement. Uh, it is being produced uh, at, at commercial scale. Um, and one of the, the things that we have to work on as an industry is to continue to make it more economical. And so making sure that we have a continuation of some of the tax incentives uh, that have been in place to help spur the investment and the innovation, we need to see those continue uh, because there's a, a real upside in terms of the potential of cellulosic. And what we need more than anything out of the agency and government is that consistent regulatory signal. For example, in the annual blending targets, you move those targets for cellulosic up every year consistent with what we're able to produce to signal there's going to be a future marketplace, your investment, your innovation, your hard work is all worth it and will pay off in the end. Well, we appreciate your effort and the effort of Growth Energy on behalf of the nation. And certainly I want to thank you for your time and spending with us here on this edition of Open Mic. You know the tradition, it is Open Mic. And Emily Score, you have the last word. Well, I am excited for this summer driving season. My family and I, we go to the lakes in Wisconsin, and we'll be there for the week of July 4th. And I am so excited that I'm going to be able to fill up on E15 this summer, save my money so that we can buy a few more extra fireworks for the kids. So I wish everybody a wonderful summer and a great summer driving season. Our thanks to Growth Energy CEO Emily Score, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer promotes responsible environmental stewardship, and Bayer is part of Growing Matters, an industry-wide effort that launched the Be Sure Stewardship Initiative this spring. Visit growingmatters.org slash be sure for more information on product stewardship. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dallin.